Be there. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We have reached the halfway mark in the book of Romans, and uh, it has been fantastic. It's been so good for my soul. But where we are today, Romans chapter 8, this is arguably the most powerful passage in the most powerful book from the most powerful writer that the world has ever known. And Paul is being guided by the Spirit of God here. And it's kind of like he's just given us his utmost. He's given us his very best here, trying to really inspire you and me and trying to get a, help us get a grasp of just how much God loves us. And what he does is he, like any good writer, he's trying to just look for word pictures, you know, to try to you know, generate some ideas and kind of stimulate the thinking. And we may not necessarily relate to this, but... We're going to talk about something right here now that's really important. But how many of you make it a habit to watch the Macy's Day Parade? Uh, Thanksgiving. All right. Uh, they had more viewers this year than they've ever had before. And it's a huge cultural event. Well, they had something like it in Rome. It was called a triumph. When a Roman general was in a war in a foreign land, then they would come back home after a resounding victory. They were honored with this massive parade that was called a triumph. And it was fantastic. There were trumpeters, there were musicians, uh, exotic animals from the conquered land, uh, <clears throat> the wealthy people from the captured lands. They were paraded through the streets. They were destined to be slaves of Rome. Uh, the rulers of the captured land were taken to the Colosseum, and there they were executed, probably beheaded uh, right there in front of all the people, and they celebrated. And the victorious general got to wear the royal purple toga and a gold tunic. All right, and he held and he held an ivory scepter, uh, which is really remarkable. And the streets were lined with garlands of flowers, kind of like the rose parade, you know. And uh, the onlookers would throw flowers onto the general and onto his commanders and his soldiers. And then uh, there was just so much adoration and praise that was being showered on this triumphant general that they would have a slave stand behind him, holding a golden crown over his head. And the, the slave was told to recite these words, all glory is fleeting. You are only a mortal, <laughs> all right? That's all, you're, that's all you are. And now not every general was given a triumph. Uh, it wasn't enough just to conquer a foreign land. You had to win big. Uh, to be given a triumph, a general was required to decisively win a major battle and kill at least 5,000 of the enemy and giving Rome an overwhelming victory in the process. And so here we have that kind of idea in your mind. And I want you to see this as we read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul is talking about the incredible resources God has given to you and me when we put our faith in Christ to be our Savior. And he says this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Then look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. You know, this way this chapter, the title today is More Than Conquerors. The way this chapter ends is awesome. There are five declarations, five things that God has done to bring about massive changes in your life and mine when we come to Christ. Then there are five defenses, five answers that are given to every objection to the security that God gives to his children. And then there are five defeated foes, five things that try to oppose us, but they fail because of what Christ has done. First of all, those five declarations. Look back at verse 29 and 30, where he says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. These are the five steps that God takes, stretching from eternity to eternity to recreate you and me so that we are fitted for heaven. Uh, you know, the apostle Paul said that, you know, we will one day have an entirely new body, an entirely new being. And that John said that when we see Jesus, we will be like him. All right. And really incredible to think about. And there's this thing called the golden chain of the gospel. There are five links in the chain, five certainties. If God foreknew you, that means he predestined you. And if God predestined you, that means he called you. And if God called you, he justified you. And if God has justified you, which is salvation by faith, then he has glorified you. It is done. It will be finished. There's nothing that can stop it. There are five defenses. You see, Paul asks five unanswerable questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, how would he not also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And who is, gonna, who is the one who condemns? He says, Christ is sitting at God's right hand, interceding for you. How could he ever condemn you? And then who shall separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. If you belong to God, he gives you an incredible eternal victory. Look at verse 37 where he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There was an ancient goddess that the Romans worshipped named Nike. We're all very familiar with that term. And you see her there in this relief, as you know, there again, it's from a museum, and the winged goddess of victory. The Romans would pray and sacrifice to Nike, asking the goddess Nike to give them victory in battle. Victory in athletic competition. And so when Paul says we are more than conquerors, it's almost like the word hyper-Nike, all right? That's what you are. It's the only time this word appears in your Bible. And it's a compound word. It means to thoroughly conquer. In our vernacular, we would say you are a super conqueror in Christ. And so Christians are much more than merely survivors in this world. But if you know Christ as your Savior, you are a super conqueror over this world, just like Jesus was. In Colossians chapter 2, we read this. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. I don't know if you've ever read that verse of Scripture, but no matter what you have done in the past, all of it is forgiven. No matter what you might do in the future, all of it is forgiven. He erased the record of debt stripped the spiritual rulers of their authority. And with the cross, 
he won the victory and made a public spectacle of them like a triumphant general displaying his captives in that victory parade called a triumph. To identify with Christ, when you say, I'm a Christian, you've identified yourself with Christ. I put my, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm his brother. I'm his sister. That is to believe that his experience will be your experience. Jesus suffered. He died. He was gloriously raised from the dead, transformed in the process, and now he lives in glory. And your destiny, just like his destiny was, is to be a super conqueror. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He said, I'm so thankful to God who always marches us to victory under the banner of Christ. Again, the Roman triumph is what he has in mind when he says that. See, uh, when he says this, that, that huge banner hanging over, you know, that you are victors. And then Paul brings up the five defeated foes, five unavoidable enemies we're all going to face in life, but they have been crushed by Christ. Back in October of 1916, uh, Georgia Tech faced Cumberland University in football in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia Tech was coached by a coach named John Heisman, who the Heisman Trophy is named after. Georgia Tech took a 63 to nothing lead in the first quarter. <laughs> All right. They led 126 to nothing at halftime. And then Coach Heisman gave his players a speech. They're up 126 to nothing. And he said, you never know what those Cumberland players have up their sleeve, gentlemen. So in the second half, go out and hit them clean, hit them hard. He said, but do not let up. All right. So Georgia Tech went on to defeat Cumberland 222 to nothing. The most crushing defeat in football history. Think of this. This is what Paul is talking about. That you are, you are crushing it in Christ. You are crushing your enemy. Think of an epic movie or the final battle approaches, remember Return of the King or something like that, where the commander steps up to speak and he gives this great rousing speech. And, and all the guys, you know, with the, with the swords and all those things, man they're, man, they're fired up, they're ready to go. And they say, you will conquer here today. That's kind of what Paul is doing here for you and me. One of these epic speeches. And he says, you will conquer because all who oppose you are already thoroughly defeated. I don't know what you might be facing in life today, but to have this attitude, this mindset that everything that might oppose me is already defeated. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We all know the answer. No one. All of our enemies are crushed. But then he starts to kind of lay out for us these five different foes. The first one are we might call our earthly enemies. He says, will trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, our sword. These are the enemies that Paul had to face almost on a weekly basis. And notice what he does here. He begins with the lesser and it kind of goes down the list and he rises to the greater. This word trouble means all those trials and, 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 and tests of just everyday life. You know, just the, just the ordinary stuff. You know, my car won't start. Uh, you know, I got a flat tire on the freeway, you know, things like that. Then there's hardship. Look at that word hardship. It means, a, it means, it literally means a tight, narrow place. This is those times when you feel trapped by life. 
He's like, man, I, 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 want, I, I can't move. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I feel helpless. Look at that word persecution. This is when you're deliberately hurt because you are a Christian. Because your views of morality, gender, whatever it might be, don't line up with the wider world. And then famine, a lack of food and money, going hungry, going thirsty. Why? Because there again, there are so many people in the world today who have lost everything in a material sense because of their identification with Jesus. Nakedness, same thing. Lack of clothes, lack of shelter for the same reason. Danger. You know, when your life is threatened because of disease, but also injury and attack. Think about how often the Apostle Paul had to face mobs of angry people. And the biggest threat is the sword. Government sanctioned execution. All right. Because of your faith in Christ. And so many people in the world face that today. And he says in verse 36, it is written in Psalm 44. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. People facing death in mass because of their identification with Jesus. And there are times in our lives that the very reason we suffer is because we do identify with Jesus. Jesus himself told us to expect this to happen. He said, the amount of trouble in your life will increase if you identify with me. But he admonished us, don't fear, don't stress, don't worry, because I have not just, I have not just defeated the world, I have conquered this world. John 16, 33, in the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. See, these earthly enemies won't separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because in the face of all these earthly threats, we are super conquerors. You know, you say, but Les, I don't understand. You know, man, my kids won't listen to me. My marriage is hurting. Uh, you know, my, my car needs work. I don't have the money. I don't have money for Christmas presents. All these, I don't feel like a super conqueror. How does that even work? I was about 18 years old. And uh, <clears throat> I was out of my friend's house. We lived way out in the country. Kind of like Meadowlark, but even farther out of town. Little subdivision. Lots of trees in South Texas. And I was watching a movie at my friend's house. It's called Death Moon. It's a werewolf movie, all right? And uh, I have to walk home after the movie's over. I'm 18 years old, a big strapping guy. And I have to walk about a quarter of a mile through a thick grove of trees. It's 10 o'clock at night, real dark, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm trying to keep my cool, but I have to admit, I got pretty tense walking through the woods there. And then I hear this heavy breathing behind me. And I got scared. And I just like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I whirl around. And all I see is like these yellow eyes and these white teeth. It's my neighbor's black Labrador named Blackie. And she wanted to play. She saw me walking. You know, she just ran out there. She jumps up and she puts her paws on my chest. I scream like a junior high girl. I mean, I won't lie to you, man. I was so afraid. I really was. And I did my level best. I got her down and everything. I was like, you stupid dog. I hate you. You know? And I got her down. And I was just like, okay, I'm just, just going to walk home. I'll be all right. I'll be welcome. I walked about two or three steps. Man, I just sprinted home. Like 800 yards, man. I just sprinted. And I remember I got home. My mom and dad were still up. And they're like, man, why are you all sweating? I was like, oh, I'm just getting to run in. I was just getting to run. Just a little exercise. That's all. I want to tell them I was so afraid. I really was. Like a werewolf was going to get me or something like that. 
When these enemies threaten us and they frighten us, what happens? We run for home. We run for home. We immerse ourselves in God's word. We say, you know, I got to be with God's people. I'm going to go to church and then I'm going to be there with them. We might kneel in prayer. We might read God's promises. We read about his power and we start receiving encouragement from others. And when we run home because the things in life that are scary threaten us, what happens? We grow closer to Christ. We grow closer to Jesus. This love affair we have with God, it just gets warmer. It gets sweeter. It gets better. Our soul is strengthened. Our heart develops. All these things begin to happen. Now, what has happened is that what, what, what the devil meant for bad, God has reverse engineered and made it work for good because we have been shaped more into the character of Christ when we run home. And just like the cross, the things that the devil thinks are going to defeat us, God re-engineers, they actually work for good. They change us. They transform us to make us more like Christ. So you see there in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, the present and future or powers, height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that word convinced. That's a very interesting word. It means to be changed from a skeptic to a believer. Think about this. Remember when you were a kid, you got in a fight with your best friend, and you were so mad at them, and the next day you made up and you were better friends than ever? Or like in football in two-a-days, man, you'd be pounding on your friends for two weeks. Sometimes you'd get in fights and things like that. Then you'd go play another team, and it was like none of that ever happened. It was like you were brothers again. That's kind of the idea here, the same concept. It's like you're in conflict with an idea or an attitude or a perspective, but then you change and become best friends with it. And I know what I thought before, but now I see differently. Now I know better, and I can't deny that it's true that this thing I was opposed to is actually my friend. You see, this isn't just laboratory theory for Paul. This is real-life experience for him. He had faced all these troubles that we have listed here, all these trials. And many times he must have thought, I can't believe this is happening. Here I am trying to do God's work, trying to do God's will, and I'm in prison. All right, here I am trying to do God's work, trying to do God's will. I get attacked by a mob or I don't have money. I don't have food. I don't have shelter. I have none of those things. And at first he was opposed to all these troubles, all these threats. But then later on, he would see how God would use them. And over and over again, he saw God re-engineer the bad and make it turn out for good, which is why he wrote verse 28. For example, in prison, he might have begun opposed to this whole idea of being thrown in prison for sharing the gospel. But then being in prison, prison actually became his friend. He actually wrote that to the Philippian church. He said, believe it or not, Philippians 1, my imprisonment has actually helped spread the good news to new places and population. He said that the imperial guard, everybody's heard why I'm in prison and they're all talking about it. Now other people are going out and they're preaching more boldly than they ever have before because I'm in prison. He said, so the gospel is increasing. He said, I rejoice. That was the whole reason that I live. And now it's happening even more, even though I am confined to this house arrest. So for you and me, a conqueror's mindset, what is that? 
I am not a victim. I am a victor. Instead of, why is this happening to me? We ask ourselves, what is God doing in this situation? Because I do know and believe God causes all things to work together for good. Paul also says we can't be separated from the love of Christ by either death or life. You think about it. Death is far from bringing a separation from God's love because when you die, you're actually nearer to his presence. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, imagine how frustrating it would have been for the Romans to say, hey, Paul, we're going we're gonna to execute you. Hey, to die is gain. Man, I love it. Thank you. That'd be great. You know, well, we're going to put you in prison. Hey, to live is Christ, you know? And so it's all, it's all good with me. It's all good. And how can life separate us from the love of God? That seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? To be separated from the love of God by life? John, the apostle, tells us emphatically in 1 John, do not love the world. And he was parroting Jesus when he said this, because Jesus said it over and over again. And you see a life example of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I talked with the students about this this morning. This verse impacted me so much. Where Paul wrote Timothy, the very last words he ever wrote, he said, Demas, one of his companions, one of the men who helped him write the New Testament, Demas has fallen in love with the present world and he's deserted me. You hear stories of Christians in hostile countries living under the threat of death. Some of those people abandon the Lord. But I do wonder sometimes, we live in America, we have so much. You know, this past week, you know, we, uh, we did an early Christmas and we had Thanksgiving. And I'm just marveling at just how much we have. And I just wonder if in heaven we'll find out that seduction will be a much more powerful tool in the devil's hands than persecution ever was. We can be seduced away from this love affair with Jesus. And if you've drifted in your love relationship to the Savior, we can never fail to take this seriously. Looking at Demas. Demas's name is at the end of two of Paul's other letters as one of his faithful companions. And yet, when the rubber really met the road there, and Paul was in prison facing execution, Demas left. He deserted. And Paul said the reason he did is that he, he loves this present world. I'm certain that Demas' love for Christ, it began with a, with a white hot intensity. But over time, that love began to fade and it began to flicker. And eventually it failed. And there was a time in his life that Demas was just kind of just kind of going through the motions, you know? Yeah, I'm in church on Sunday, you know, and I'll do whatever Paul needs, but man, my heart's not really in it. We have to take that seriously. Life separates us from the love of Christ. Then he also says, neither angels nor demons nor any powers. You know, we're all, I don't know about you all, man, I'm glued to the TV right now, you know, watching all the things that are going on in Israel. And I think about Hamas. It's kind of hard to understand a terrorist organization like Hamas, just filled with hatred, this lust for destruction, completely dedicated to one purpose, the complete destruction of their enemy, enemy Israel. I mean, they could have a great country, hundreds of millions of dollars of relief flow into that country every year. 
And it's a beautiful little spot on the ocean there. There could be a really good economy. And yet everything they get, there didn't have to be a blockade. Everything they get goes into buying weapons and building tunnels. That's all that ever happens there. Why? They believe Israel took their home from them and they live in misery because of Israel. And they don't want to make a new beginning. They don't want a fresh start. They don't want to try to make a viable country or an economy. The only thing that they lust for is the destruction of the party they believe did them wrong. What are demons? Demons are evil angels, beings of enormous power that we cannot begin to comprehend. And you look at that word powers. These are the spiritual forces in the atmosphere over our world that are dedicated to one thing only. And that's hostility to God and God's people. Isaiah chapter 24, Isaiah said, At that time, the Lord will punish the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens above. He'll also punish the kings of the earth below, and they'll be bound in prison. And the Bible tells us there was a war in the heavenly realms, and some angels lost that war, and they were banished. And now they have one obsession, the annihilation of everyone associated with the one who defeated them and banished them. And they use all of their power to that one purpose, the destruction of God's kingdom. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this is so important. Paul says, none of these powers can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you that your faith would not fail. And when, not if, when you have repented and turned back, strengthen your brother. I just want you to know this today. Jesus told Peter, and it's true for all of us because we identify with Peter as a follower of Jesus, that you will be pressed absolutely by the powers above, but you cannot be crushed. No power in the universe could ever separate Peter from God's love. God's grip on him was too tight. And that is so true for you as well. Paul also says we can't be separated from the love of God by either the present or the future. The present has its temptations and its sufferings. What about the future? The future has its uncertainties and its worries. We all worry about the future. I wonder how much today you think about the future. You know, when you're, you're wringing your hands, you know, what is... What does the future hold? What does the future hold for my children? What does the future hold for my grandchildren? Absolutely. Think about this. None of us can know with any degree of certainty what the future holds with one glaring exception. No matter where you find yourself in the future, whatever that future might be, you know in that future that Christ loves you. Christ loves you. In John chapter 16, he told his disciples, he was trying to prepare them for his departure. He said, when a woman gives birth to a child, she knows when her time comes. And as soon as she has given birth, to, she knows pain when her time comes. Yet as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers her agony. Look at this. Now you are going through pain. I know there are some of you here today 
you read that sentence, you go, yeah, that's me. Yep, yep. Now, you go through pain. But here's what you need to see. Look at what he says in the next breath. But I shall see you again, and your hearts will thrill with joy. Isn't that a beautiful promise? What a beautiful picture. Yes, you're in pain right now. And just like the mother who goes through incredible agony, giving birth, but then the moment that baby is born, all of her agony turns to joy. And Jesus says, there will be a day that will be just like that. You will see me again and all of your pain, all of your agony, it will turn to joy. So we don't worry about the future. We are conquerors of the future, super conquerors because of Christ who loves us. And look, look at this, this uh, uh, next thing. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall separate you from the love of Christ. Now, I don't know if you read your horoscope, right? If you're into the zodiac and things like that, or astrology, stars, you know, maybe you use that pickup line sometime. Hey, what's your sign or something like that? I hope you've never done that. All right. But the ancient world was haunted by the tyranny of the stars. That's what Paul is talking about here. These words in their original language were very common astrological terms in Paul's day. See, they believed that a man or a woman was born under a certain star. As that star came low in the sky on the day you were born, then that star controlled your destiny. If the star rose, so did you. If the star sank, so did you. All right, it's what they believed. And the ancient world believed, believed that a person's life was dominated by the influence of the stars. So that word height was at the time when the star was at its zenith, was at its pinnacle. Those are good times in life. And that word depth, the word bathos, where we get the word bath, okay? The time when the star was at its lowest, looking to choose someone or making that person's life miserable, something like that. Look at verse 39, when he says, and then nothing else in all creation. In this context, what Paul means is no other world. Not, not even if you could go to some other world, different from this world, if you were transported to some other world, even there, you would not be beyond God's loving reach. And I want you to think about that for a moment. For Paul to say something like that is extraordinary. The first person to see another world was Galileo. In 1610, when he saw one of the moons of Jupiter through a telescope that he had developed. And so Paul was writing this 1,500 years before Galileo. But think about this. You know, you'll see some people pick up their newspaper, read their horoscope, or, you know, things like that. Or they'll, you know, try to figure out, you know, what is, what is, what is, what is my fate? What is my destiny? People use all kinds of clues and all sorts of things to try to know these things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and pseudo-intellectual babble, according to the musings of mere men, following the elementary principles of this world, rather than following the truth, the teachers of Christ. You know, sometimes we're tempted because we read things on social media, we, we read the latest book, or there's this latest training at work, and, 
and we, we take a personality test, you know, maybe DISC, we might, we might learn our Enneagram, we might learn all sorts of things about ourselves, and we say, well, that's my fate. That's my fate because I'm a, I'm a seven or I'm a, I'm a D, whatever it might be. Never, never limit yourself by anything that are the musings of mere men. Paul calls those things the, the elementary principles of this world. The, 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 the elementary principles is a word that kind of means something like little building blocks, like the little ABC blocks that kids use when they're toddlers. He said, don't ever limit yourself because of these kinds of things. No, you're a super conqueror in Christ. If there is something that God has laid on your heart to do, something God has laid on your heart to become, then you go do that believing that you are a conqueror and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Never limit yourself. Never assign yourself some fate because of something some man or woman has said. Absolutely not. Even if it's Oprah, okay? Not even Oprah. Don't listen to any of that, all right? You are a conqueror, more than a conqueror in Christ. And so the conclusion here today is this. Look at verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That word separate, by the way, it's used 13 times in your New Testament. And almost every time, without exception, it's always used in the context of marriage. We all know the words we hear at weddings, every wedding we go to. You know, that Jesus said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Same word Paul uses here. And that's the same way the word, that's the same context that word is used in throughout your New Testament. And we know as we read our New Testament that the marriage of a man and a woman is a powerful picture you and I are supposed to see when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus not only forgave us, but He wed us. There was a wedding. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, you must love your wives so deeply, purely, and sacrificially that we can understand it only when we compare it to the love Christ has for His bride, the church. You know, human love is very fragile, easily upset. Any number of troubles can impede human love. But God's love is so much more than any love we can ever experience with people. And what you have here at the end of Romans chapter 8 is like the most awesome Hallmark card ever written. God saying, I love you so much. And here's how it is. And it is very poetic, isn't it? It almost does read like a Hallmark card from a husband to a wife. And so God has drawn you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, into a covenant relationship, a faith covenant, so to speak. It's an unbreakable bond, and absolutely nothing can ever break that bond that He has formed with you. You might say, but Les, my love for God is just so lackluster. You know, it just kind of comes and goes, and it's so frail, it's so feeble, and so fickle. Yeah, but you can never be separated from God's love for you. But I do want you to think about that. The Lord's love for you is so great. It is so great. How will you respond? This week, I think Thursday, November the 30th, 
I will have been married to my beautiful bride for 32 years. I am so excited. It is, it's been, been amazing. Just been amazing. 32 years. Let's suppose I call Melanie up. I said, hey, honey, I'm going to take you out for an Italian dinner. She's like, oh, that would be great. This is Thursday afternoon. I'm going to take you out for an Italian dinner. And she gets in the car. We drive to Amarillo. And we go to Firehouse Subs because their meatball sub, man, it is amazing. <laughs> it is so good. All right? It is really, really good. And I take her to Firehouse Subs. I said, hey, honey, 32 years, man. I love you. I love you so much. You enjoying your sandwich? It's really good, isn't it? Yeah, really good. Or what if I went even further? Let's say that uh, Thursday I drive up in the driveway with a brand new car. She would kill me, okay? She really would. But let's just, you know, pretend. I drove with a brand new car, like you see in the commercial with a big bow on top. And I say, here, honey, I got you a car. I hand her the keys. I say, happy anniversary. I'm going to go watch the game, all right? Take your car out, have a good time. I'm going to go watch the game, all right? Thursday night, Amazon football. Man, you know what she wants more than anything? She wants to know that I prize her and that I highly value time with her. That's how I show her love. And that is what God wants from you and me. God is pouring his heart out here, out here through his apostles saying, I love you. I have a covenant with you. I have embraced you. I have my grip on you. And you may be pressed, but you'll never be crushed. And you may be in pain, but there will be great joy one day. I will never let you go. And then how do we respond? How do we respond? The prophet Hosea wrote this. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of the rains in early spring. And then God responds through his prophet. Oh, Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. It's real easy sometimes to slip into this kind of performance-based relationship with God. You know, hey, I went to church a lot. I studied my Bible every day, spent time in prayer, prayed through my prayer list and all those things. And God says, I want you to show love. I want you to show love to me. And I want you to know me. I love the offerings. They're great. Like, no, they say, thank you for the car. But I want you to know me. And I know Melanie, she's so gracious. You know, she'd say, hey, thank you for the dinner, all right? But I want you to show love. Oh, that you would know me. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let's bow our heads together this morning. If we could just bow our heads and close our eyes, you just kind of quiet your heart this morning. I want to ask you just to ponder for a minute just this incredible love poem written through the apostle to you. You are more than a conqueror. Why? Because God's love for you is so immense. It is so remarkable. It is incredible beyond all human comprehension. And then God says, 
just want you to know me. I just want to have a love relationship with you. I just want to ask you to think about that this morning. Has this love affair with God become more of a duty? Has it become more of a performance? Has it become something of a ritual? If it has, would you just go before the Lord this morning and say, Lord, would you just reinvigorate my heart? Or just massage my heart, massage my soul, bring it back to life. Just breathe new life, breathe new love into my heart for you. You say, Lord, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want us to be like that middle-aged couple just going through the motions. Lord, I want us to be like that newly married young couple who have a vibrant and just sweet love affair. Lord, show me how to return to my first love. So let's just be quiet together for a few minutes and speak to God about our relationship with Him today, this love relationship that we have. I'll pray for us here in a moment. Oh, Lord, that we might that we might know you, Lord, or that we might just press on to know you. Father, I just ask that for all of us here today, Father, beginning with me, Lord, that you would just do such a mighty work in our hearts, that we just might press into this relationship we have with you. Lord, thank you for loving us so dearly in such an undying love, such a strong love. And I just want to ask, Father, that you would just impress upon every heart here today, or just how impressive your heart, your heart is and how impressive your love is. And Father, just give us all that passion to, to press into you, Lord, in new ways. We ask this for your glory today, Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much. Amen. Amen. All right.